You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Colossians. Here's Nate. Paul viewed the Colossian church as a church under attack. In chapter 2, verse 5, which we'll close out this teaching with today, he said, I rejoice to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That phrase, good order, is a term that can quite easily be taken in a military sense. It's as if Paul is saying, listen, you are under spiritual attack that is like a military attack. And Paul's desire here in writing the letter to this church is to build them up so that they can stand against the attacks that were coming against them. Now, the missiles that were being fired, the attacks that they were experiencing is found for us in chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says, I'm saying everything I'm saying to you in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And we'll see these plausible arguments unfold uh, in the chapters and verses to come. But to highlight them quickly, it seems that Paul was dealing with, chapter 2, verse 8, human traditions that were trumping the message of Christ. There were those in Colossae that were promoting, chapter 2, verse 11, circumcision. There were those in chapter 2, verse 16, that were promoting different kinds of food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. There were those in chapter 2, verse 18, that were promoting asceticism. Same verse, there were those that were promoting the worship of angels, as well as the promotion of visions. In chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, there were those who were holding out rules, laws, and regulations above and beyond Christ. Paul called all of it, in chapter 2, verse 23, self-made religion, asceticism, severity to the body. He said of them, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These were some of the plausible arguments that were coming against the Colossian church. And so Paul wrote to them to build them up so that they might be able to stand against these plausible arguments. Now, before he really gets into building them up, he wants to let them know of his deep concern for them, his great struggle on their behalf. After all, if they knew Paul's heart for them, his great intensity towards them, perhaps they might receive his message a little more easily. He says in verse 24, picking up where we left off, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now, Paul says something here in verse 24 that is absolutely astounding. He says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I'm suffering for the church. 
And as I'm suffering, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, obviously, Paul is not referring to filling up something that is lacking in the afflictions of Christ in the sense of his atoning work on the cross. No, in just a few short verses, we'll see that Paul was thoroughly convinced that the work of Jesus on the cross was a sufficient, complete, and total work, taking the handwriting of requirements that was against us, the law, and nailing it to the cross of Christ. This is no purgatory kind of verse. Paul isn't saying that he, in his suffering, is atoning for a single thing. But remember now Paul's testimony. When Paul came to Christ, he was in the middle of persecuting the church. He was traveling to Damascus to arrest Christians, to throw them into prison, to see them to eventually their deaths. And as he was knocked to the ground by a bright light, he said, Who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. From the very beginning of Paul's Christian life, he understood that when a Christian suffers, Christ himself is suffering. And so Paul was able to say, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. In other words, Jesus is still suffering even today through the lives of those who suffer for him. He suffers right alongside of them. But notice the first thing that Paul had said, something that to us seems to be at first glance a paradox. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Why did Paul rejoice over his hard and difficult ministry towards and for the Colossian church? I mean, there he was in prison in Rome. He'd experienced great bodily harm. Uh, for the sake of the Gentile church, of which, of course, the Colossians were a part of. I think Paul rejoiced in one sense because his suffering meant that he was counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. I think he also rejoiced because he was taking one for the Gentile team. In other words, all of this suffering was producing something in the lives of Gentiles. But I think as well, Paul rejoiced because his trial and difficulty uh, enabled him to have a do-over in life. Much like Jonah, who had rejected the initial call of God upon his life, but the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time and said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah went. Paul was getting a second opportunity. As a Pharisee, he'd rejected God's purpose for his life and had actually been involved in the killing of Christians. And so for Paul to suffer a little bit so that people might enter into eternal life, it brought him and caused him great rejoicing. He goes on in verse 25, speaking of the church, there at the end of verse 24, he said, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. 
to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And so Paul begins to speak of this mystery, verse 26. Now in the Bible, a mystery is something that previously was hidden, but has now been revealed. And that's what Paul had said there in verse 26. There was this mystery that had been hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints. And Paul considered himself a minister according to the stewardship from God given to him for the Colossian church to, and this was his stewardship, make the word of God fully known. In other words, there's this mystery that has now been revealed in the cross of Christ. Paul's whole mission was to declare that mystery and to make the word of God fully known, not just partially known, not just a segment of God's divine revelation, but the whole complete deal. I mean, if you were just to understand the first two chapters of the Bible, you'd be very confused by the world in which we live, this perfect and sinless reality there in Genesis 1 and 2. You would wonder, what happened? You read Genesis 3, and you see the fall of man, and it answers so many of the questions that would face us in this world. But on and on through Scripture, if you were to stop at a certain point, your knowledge would be incomplete. There were definitely foreshadowings. There were definitely prophecies. But Paul was ministering in an era where the gospel had been fully declared. The cross had been fully uh, sufficient. The work of Christ had been fully accomplished. And Paul was now able to write from the perspective of a man that God was using to make this mystery fully known. Now, the question, of course, is, what is the cornerstone of that mystery that Paul was to reveal on behalf of God? He says in verse 27, to them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So Paul is saying, listen, even the Gentiles were able to receive this. It's a wonderful uh, message. But he says, this is the mystery, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, he says in verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This really is the great mystery that Paul had set out to declare to the Colossian church and really to all of the world. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery basically was the message that the Colossian church needed to receive in order to bolster them against the attacks that were coming against them. And the, the mystery, the message from Paul was Christ in you, the hope of glory. Unfortunately, the Colossians were beginning to turn to the uh, neglect of the flesh, you know, self-discipline, asceticism, things like circumcision, rituals like that, turning back to Sabbaths and festivals, 
turning back to all of these regulations and rules and man-made religion in order to transform the flesh and to improve self. Paul here gives them the real mystery, the real thing that will change and transform a life. He says it like this, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This, of course, had been promised in the Old Testament era, not fully understood, but at least prophesied of. Jeremiah had said in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, God speaking through Jeremiah, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us that this is fulfilled in the new covenant ministry of Jesus Christ. Basically, what Paul is describing when he says Christ in you, the hope of glory, is he's describing briefly the new covenant that is ours in Christ Jesus. You know, the Colossians, with all of their rules and regulations, were attempting to improve themselves. But Jesus, by the blood of the cross, was to live life through them and give them great glory. He would truly change and transform their lives. You know, I would compare this to watching an, an incredible and professional athlete on film, trying to mimic the things that they do. I remember being a young man, a, a boy, and wanting to get better at basketball. And I would watch video of the greatest shooters on earth, professional shooters, you know, and just watch their form and the way that they shot the ball and all of that. And I would seek to emulate their form. I would try to, you know, have my forearm do the same thing and point the elbow and lift the arm and and snap the wrist and all of that and of course with that kind of emulation I did find slowly but surely great improvement in uh, my life but I never attained to that level of professionalism never climbed to that kind of Ability. There was only so much time to study film, only, only so much time to practice. It took a lot of sweat. It took a lot of, I'm sure, tears, missed shots and big games and all of that. But it'd be so much different for one of those players that I watched and observed to jump off the screen and somehow climb inside of my body and begin to shoot that ball for me. That's what a Christian has in Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. His spirit comes and resides inside of us. He seeks and desires to live through us. The Colossians did not need asceticism. They did not need a bunch of rules and regulations. They needed to realize that Christ was in them, wanting to change them and transform them personally in his own power and his own ability. 
I've found that there are three wonderful words that describe what this kind of life is like. The first word that I would use is the word rest. It is extremely restful to understand that in order to mature as a believer, in order to progress as a man and as a Christian, it's not so much about the struggle that I give myself to, but resting in that sufficiency of Christ and receiving his life flowing through me. Hebrews chapter 4 makes it clear that rest is the uh, calling of God upon all of his saints. He says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Not a Saturday, but a general state of being. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In other words, the things that I do now in life, they're really not my works. They are God's works through me. I am simply resting in him. I found that a second great word to describe this Christ in you hope of glory experience is the word relationship. So many people love to cling to rules. They love to cling to requirements. I mean, for me, I could crank up social media at any point and observe a bunch of Christians and see what is getting them fired up or excited. And quite often, it's just some other rule, some other regulation, some other thing that they feel that if they do it and they attain it, they're somehow, uh, you know, more mature than they were previously. I found that it's less about rules and it's more about a relationship with the Lord. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that as we with an unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. As we hang out with Jesus, basically, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes by the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, as we spend time with Christ in relationship, we become like Him. He changes us. He transforms us as we relate to Him. I think the third word that I would use to describe this Christ in you, the hope of glory experience, the first one being rest, the second being relationship. Number three, I would use the word real. I think for so many Christians, what they're experiencing is artificial transformation. It's not real. It's not at the heart level. It's a put on. It's a fallacy. It's a fake. It's borderline hypocrisy. The Lord wants to do something real inside of us, real change, real transformation, something where not only are my actions changed, but the heart behind my actions has been changed. Jesus said in John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. A real, genuine work. It's fruit. It's not fake fruit. It's not artificial. As I have a relationship with the Lord and Christ works inside of me and his life is pumping into my life, the fruit that comes 
from my life is absolutely real. This is the great mystery. They hadn't understood it for generations past, but Paul now declares it. It's Christ in us. He's actually living inside of us. Incredible news. So in verse 28, back in Colossians chapter 1, Paul said, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice Paul's message. His message was not uh, a what, it was a who. Him we proclaim. He had previously said that his desire was to make the word of God fully known. Well, to make the word of God fully known, you have to proclaim Jesus. And his whole desire was to warn and to teach with wisdom in order to present everyone mature in Christ. Yeah, there is warning. There is teaching. We give the full recommendation of wisdom as we move through God's word. It's not just a continual repetition of the life of Jesus. We have more to the Bible than just the gospels themselves. However, the message is Jesus, who, as we consider him, enables us to be created mature in him. And Paul's desire was to present everyone with that fullness or that perfection or that maturity to the Lord. And so any good church will have a desire to present people mature in Christ. It's one thing to be an evangelistic vehicle, which of course is part of the mission of the body of Christ. But in many ways, the role of the church is that of, as, as far as the pastors and the leadership and the structure, is that of presenting every person mature in Christ Jesus. It's oftentimes the role of the individuals inside of the church to be the evangelistic uh, vehicle. So there should always be inside of a body of Christ, inside of a church, of course, an evangelistic motivation, but also there needs to be a discipleship, a maturity motivation as well. And Paul said in verse 29 to the Colossians, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. He says, listen, I'm throwing everything I've got into this life, into this ministry. I'm struggling. I'm toiling with all, and I love how he says this, his energy. This is borrowed energy that Paul is working off of, that he says powerfully works within me. Paul was a living example of what it meant to have Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ was in him, powerfully working through him to reach people's lives. Paul was struggling with all of Christ's energy that Christ was powerfully working inside of him. You know, the way Paul said it in Philippians 2 is perfect. You know, we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We're, should, we're to demonstrate this salvation with, with, you know, resiliency. But then he goes on to say, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And 
I just love Paul's approach. He left everything on the table. I don't think he went to heaven, went to eternity with any regrets of any more work that he could have put into it. He threw everything that he had into his ministry and into his life. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, he moves on to say, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now this is where we get our evidence that Paul had not started the church in Colossae. It appears that those in Laodicea, as well as those in Colossae, had not yet seen Paul face to face. But he wants them to know of the great struggle that he had for them. Now, how could he not see them face to face, yet struggle for them? Well, obviously, in this letter, he is struggling for them. But one of Paul's struggles for the Colossians and for the Laodiceans, we can assume, was prayer. Paul considered prayer to be a part of warfare, to be a part of a battle and a fight. Sometimes we struggle in prayer. I should say, oftentimes we struggle in prayer. Paul had said that he was laboring and toiling with all of the energy that Christ was working through him. He says here, I want you to know how great a struggle I had for you. And he's definitely, at least partly, speaking of prayer. In other words, Paul's prayer life was energized and fueled by Jesus himself. I find that is the best kind of prayer. When you can silence your heart and the Holy Spirit begins to stir within you, and you begin to pray in concert with the Spirit of God, whether it's through a spiritual gift like the gift of tongues, or whether it's just the leading of God's Spirit as you pray, and you begin to find yourself praying things in harmony with His desires and will, it's good to trust the help of the Lord to strengthen us in our prayer lives. He says, the reason I'm struggling for you is verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. He's, he's saying, listen, I'm praying for you, working for you, struggling for you, so that you might find encouragement, you might come together in love to one another, and that you might reach this full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. And he says at the end of verse 2, which is Christ. It's not some code or some uh, random or new interpretation of God's word. The mystery is Christ, in whom, Paul says in verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one, verse 4, may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul just says, listen, he'd already told us, him we proclaim. Here he says, in Jesus, who is the mystery, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, they had been flirting with human tradition, but Christ gives us divine teaching. They had struggled with the act of circumcision, should we partake in it again? But, but it's Christ who truly destroys the flesh. They had wanted to get, go back to food and drink regulations, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. But he tells us later that those things are a shadow. It's Christ who is the substance. 
They wanted to turn to asceticism, to the neglect or abuse of the flesh. But that can't sanctify us. It is Christ who sanctifies us. They wanted to worship angels, but it is Christ who is our mediator. They wanted to hold fast to visions, but Christ is our supreme vision. They wanted to give themselves to regulations, but Christ is our regulation and that he gives us the law of love. So Paul in so many ways is saying, listen, uh, the mystery is Jesus. Every treasure of wisdom and knowledge is hidden inside of him. Preach Jesus and watch the transformation occur, be bolstered against these plausible arguments. For verse 5, though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. It's just a, an expression. He doesn't consider himself actually present with the church in Colossae. He says, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is a verse that we began our study with. But he's saying, listen, I'm trying to bolster you in a military sense to stand against all of these plausible arguments that will attack the simple mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.